Yesterday, I was watching a baseball game, and uh, there was a guy there that had a really good day. A couple home runs, six RBIs. If you know anything about baseball, that's a pretty good day. And uh, they talked about before the game, he had taken his shoes off and had walked several minutes through the outfield. And they'd asked him why. He said, I'm getting myself grounded. And he didn't wear batting gloves that day. and said he would reach into the dirt and get that dirt on his hands. And that was what he used uh, to, to hold that bat firmly. And so uh, hopefully today we can get grounded in God's word. Uh, you can take off your spiritual shoes and, uh, and get into it a little bit. So this is part two of last week, uh, speaking about God's ability uh, to redeem anything and anyone. And we were working through the lives of James and Paul and how they intersected. Um, and so what I wanted to do, I realized I had stolen a lot of today's thoughts last week. So I had to kind of rework this week, which is good. Uh, it keeps it fresh. And what I realized I hadn't really talked about was that God has a very specific plan in how he's going to and already has redeemed our lives, even the hard parts. And we spoke a little bit last week about how to develop a good story that there are five crucial elements, the characters, the setting, the conflict, the plot, and the resolution. And we got through the characters. Uh, obviously, that's Paul, the persecutor. It is James, the pillar of the church. And then we spoke about Stephen, the first martyr. And this week, we're going to introduce a few maybe side characters, Ananias and Barnabas, people that allowed God to use them. We described the setting that was Jerusalem and the early church. It was Damascus and the, uh, the growing church there, and then the road outside Damascus where Christ broke into Paul's life. And we talked about the conflict, the pursuit of the church, and it says of Paul that he was breathing murderous threats. Those are strong words to describe him. And that that all had begun with the life of Stephen and his testimony before the court and their stoning of him and Paul's approval of it and how that was the inciting incident that kicked off the persecution of that early church. So now we need to talk about the story, the plot, and then we get to the resolution. As we look at these lives, I'm struck again and again that these were not people who, until they were maybe 30 years old, you would have thought would have been the 
anchors of Christ's ministry. These are people who denied him, people who hated him, people who were taught that Christ was a false Messiah, and instead he was the Messiah. And when they came to Stephen, what really infuriated about him was they couldn't disprove him. He spoke strong words that the Spirit gave him because he had given himself over to God and said, use me as your instrument. And so that's where we're going to pick up with Paul now, where Christ is going to make him his instrument. So we pick up in Acts 9. Like we said, the story of Paul gathers steam quickly in the book of Acts. He's uh, introduced in, uh, in 7, and by the time we get to 9, uh, it's been three years of time, and it's... It's strong. So in 9-1, it begins, Meanwhile, Paul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priests and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. I'm not sure why God was okay with persecution in Jerusalem. I'm not sure why this was the exact time he needed to break into Paul's life. But this is how it happened. Christ knew the right time. When it, in the story of James, he knew the right time. In my own life, God has stepped in at just the right time. When I was a high school senior getting ready to graduate, I, uh, I had attended a Christian high school and I had intended not to go to a Christian college. I thought it was too sheltered, not enough opportunity. But God was talking to me, and I said, all right, God, I'm going to lay down some rules. If, I, if you want me to go to a Christian school, it's got to have these three things. If it doesn't have these three things, I'm not going, because that's what I need. Within two weeks, a guy came to our school and talked about a little itty-bitty college down in Florida on the beach, and had all three of the things I'd asked for. And I said, all right, God, you got me. <laughs> I've said that to some people, God uses that still small voice. For me, he uses big neon signs. Some of us are, uh, have better ears to hear the Lord, I suppose. And he knew that Paul needed a big neon sign. And so he breaks in. In verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, that big neon light, he fell to the ground and heard a voice to him say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul goes, who are you, Lord? As if he doesn't know already. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. This was an attack on Paul's spiritual life. Like I mentioned last week, Paul didn't persecute the church. He didn't drag people out of their homes, have them tried and murdered because he was an evil person. He did it because he believed. And he believed that these guys were leading people astray. And so Christ had to turn that and he had to do it with authority. And so he broke in to Paul's life. And it says the men traveling with Paul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. 
when Saul got up from the ground, when he'd opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. This was an assault on Paul's senses. And like I mentioned last week, his eyes were opened while his eyes were blinded. And he understood what he had done. The benefit of having someone like Paul turned to the gospel was that he was a person of authority. He would come into someone's life and he would speak. This is the person who confronts Peter face to face. When Peter was, had a misstep about if you had to also be a Jew to be a, to, to be, uh, to be a Christian. It takes some guts. And so that's what Christ needed. He needed someone who was going to go throughout the known world and speak his word. And that is why he harnessed Paul. In the following verses, and I, I didn't include them, there's a character named Ananias, who is a wonderful supporting character, the book of Acts. And Christ is going to break into his life too. And he says, Ananias, I need you to go over to Straight Street. There's a guy there who's been blinded by me, and I need you to go heal him. And it's Paul, the persecutor. And in verse 13, Ananias goes, but Lord, I've heard terrible things. They're all true. And God's response is, go. This is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings. And he must suffer in my name. That is, in a nutshell, the story of Paul's life. A ministry to the Gentiles and to kings and someone who suffered for the story of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning asking that you would help us to remember that we are redeemed. And we are redeemed with a purpose, with a plan, with objects and things and times and people we must be involved with because it is part of your will. Lord, and as you lead these men, James and Paul and Ananias and Barnabas and Peter and John, so you also want to lead us if we are surrendered to you. We bring this all to you now. Amen. So Ananias' eventual response, which I love it, the first one, but God, I've heard terrible things. He does. He gets up. And in verse 17, it says that Ananias went to the house over there on Straight Street. And he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may, have, like, may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So once again, no one needed to tell Ananias what had happened. Christ had given him the story. And once again, this is a reinforcement in Paul's mind. Like, this is Christ. Here's a man you've never met who's come to heal you, and Christ sent him. 
He goes, and immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized and he took some food and he regained his strength. And he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, once again, the terrible stories, isn't he who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Like Stephen, his words could not be refuted because they were not his. They were the Lord's words. And as I mentioned last week, Paul time and time again reminds us that his words come from Christ. They come from no man. He was not instructed by Peter or John or James. He was instructed by Christ himself. And it's one of the reasons he speaks so boldly. And he goes into places where no one would go with, with, uh, with, with pride in the word and with force and strength. And he does time and again. In places where anyone else would be shaking with fear, he is not. In a dark pit, in a prison with Silas, they sing praises. There are earthquakes. There are times of persecution. There are shipwrecks. There are trials upon no end. And every time Paul steps up, because I thought he had a lot, he feels like he had a lot to pay back. But all of this goes just to remind us that there was nothing that Paul could do that was going to take him outside the will of God at this point. God had control of his life because God can redeem anyone and anything. Now, understandably, he didn't immediately go back to Jerusalem. He had a pretty bad reputation there. And there are a lot of people he knew that he had been alongside with who were there. And so for three years, he stays away from Jerusalem. And there's a question of what he's doing. Is he ministering in Damascus? It says he went to Arabia. Is he communing with God? There's some questions about what happened there. But we know for three years, Christ was building him up in the word. So he finally gets back to Jerusalem three years later. Maybe he's hoping that some of his bad reputation will have faded It hasn't. And in verse 26 of chapter 9 of Acts, it says that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. This makes sense, right? This is someone, imagine if someone had come in here and was attacking us. And then just three years later, they come and they want to be a part of our body. We'd have concerns. Between verse 26 and 27, there's a lot that happens that we don't get to know about. But in 26, it ends that they did not think he was a believer. And in 27, it says, then Barnabas brought him in. So how does he know Barnabas? Where does he find Barnabas? 
Barnabas tells the story of, how, of his conversion on, on the road to Damascus. Is that something that maybe he had met him in Damascus? Maybe he was part of those believers. Maybe he was part of that, there's a, a particular synagogue for Jews who were from outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and Barnabas was from Cyprus. So he would have been a, a Cypriot. He would have probably been in that same um, synagogue that Paul was when he was in Jerusalem. Maybe he knew him from there. But Barnabas was a leader of the church. He's eventually asked to go to Antioch and make sure what's going on there is real by the apostles. So they, someone they trusted. And so you have this trusted convert, a Levite, a Jew from outside of Israel. Someone that Paul can connect with, have a lot of similarities with. And he, I imagine they had to have a lot of conversations where Barnabas was probing and asking, is this all real? Because he cared for his people. But however long it takes, Paul does persuade him that it, his conversion is authentic. And Barnabas brings him in, and he says he brought him into the apostles and told them how he had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to him. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. It took someone to get him in the door. But once he does, they see it is real. His conversion, this is one of the most powerful speakers on Christ's behalf we're ever going to see. And then once again, in a, in a parallel to the story of Stephen, remember that when Stephen's ministry picked up, it says, and then oppression arose. And op uh, op uh, what was the word? Opposition, excuse me. Opposition arose. So that happens to Paul here as well. And in verse 29, it says, he debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. These may have been people that three years ago, he'd have been alongside. And now they want to murder him as he had tried to murder others. And so he has to flee Jerusalem. He has to run away. It wasn't quite time for him to be accepted. And so he spends another 11 years being ministered by Christ, preaching the word, traveling to the churches, the synagogues, and helping people and reinforcing their faith, helping them understand how the Messiah of the Old Testament and the life of Christ are the same. And it, just, it says that he, just, he could not be refuted. And that's an amazing gift. In this time that he had come to Jerusalem, he spends about two weeks there, mostly with Peter. But it does say that he did meet James. And I think I'd mentioned this previously, that I feel like there are a lot of similarities to James in the story of Paul. There had been a, a special appearance of someone who didn't believe, and now someone who was speaking boldly. And so I feel like James was able to really connect with Paul on those grounds and he was able to eventually really accept him. And so 11 years later, he finally returns to Jerusalem. And he had never really sought approval 
of the, of the church in Jerusalem before. But he says he wanted to make sure what he was doing wasn't in vain, is that it wasn't useless. And so he did return and he kind of sought their approval. It says, I went back to Jerusalem. This is from Galatians 2. Oddly enough, Galatians is the most likely the second of the book of the New Testament written chronologically. So James and Galatians are our two earliest references. Because I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. And in verse 7, it picks up and says, They saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as an apostle to the Jews also worked through me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And this is where it gets good. It says, in fact, James and Peter and John, who were known as the pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. That would have been a great encouragement to Paul. That not just to be seen as approved, but to have been a co-worker. That he had come alongside these apostles, these people who lived with Christ. And they said, you're doing our same work. And your ministry is out there. Ours is here. Yours is everywhere else. And I imagine for someone like Saul to have gotten this stamp, he says it's the right hand of friendship. I think he feels like he made it. And he says that God's not a respecter of persons, that he didn't hold anyone differently. But this is Paul saying that this is what happened. And so I did think it carried some weight with him. And they encouraged him to keep teaching to the Gentiles. And they add on one more thing. They said, and remember the poor. And I think this is supposed to call back to Stephen. So what was Stephen's ministry? That was to the poor. And so we see that time and time again, God finds the simple things, the imperfect things, to complete his perfect will. So what I want to talk about today was that there's always been a plan. The moment you got saved, wouldn't it be encouraging to know that that moment God had a plan in place for you? But it's not even that. However, the moment you were born, God had a plan for you. It's not even that. Before he had formed the foundations of this world, he had a plan for us. In Ephesians 1, it says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us to be holy in Christ. And in 1 Peter 1, it says, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, that God chose him as our ransom long before the world began. Heard a Matthew West song on the way in this morning. 
And it was that he made us. And he had this plan for us. And in Galatians, Paul even says, he says, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. God's plan for Paul had to take into account the evil he would do because it's what turned him. It's what made him so forceful for God. And he has a plan for you. All the abilities, all the gifts, the time, the people of your life are all part of his plan. I look back over my own life. So many people who were an encouragement to me at just the right time. Finding my wife. I don't deserve that. I think most of our men in this room would agree our wives are much too good for us. But that's God's plan. He saw our future. He saw our lives. He saw what we needed to make us better, make us more fit for his service. And I realize I haven't talked very long, but I'm ready to come to my final point. And that is that he chose you He's had a plan for you even before you were born. Before the foundations of this world were laid, he saw what you needed. Imagine your own parents. If before you were born, they could see the entirety of your life, all of your failings, all of your traumas, and that's all they could see. It was only the negative. Would they still have chosen to have you as a child? That's not what parents see. Parents see all the good, all the potential. Imagine your same parents could see all of the great things of your life. All the moments of success. That is what we all imagine for our own children. And when God first conceptualized this world... He saw all of it. And he knew he'd have to surrender part of himself to save us, but he also knew it was worth it. And so that's you. That's every church that calls Christ God. We are the part that is worth it. And our job is to not let it stop here. We can't grow the church only by having more kids, although that's a really good way and it makes Luke happy, more and more kids, that's great. But we need to get out in our community. Things like this VBS coming up next week. We need to get with families and say, look, there's a church that wants you to come in, that wants to teach you about God's word. And so we must be God's love. Christ knew when he was looking for disciples that men like Peter 
and Andrew and James and John were looking for a calling in their lives, and he called them to be fishers of men. And he knew that his own brother had greatness in him to be a leader of the young church, and so he called to him. And he knew that Paul could be a great voice and would be the ministry to the Gentiles and kings, and so he broke into his life. And he knew that Ananias had the ability to, if it's the only time he did a miracle in all of his life, to step into that room and to touch Paul and to heal him and to change that man's life. And he saw Barnabas, that he had a heart. And he said, I need you to bring this guy into the church because they won't accept him otherwise. And he saw a warehouse in Liberty and said, I can redeem that building. And he sees that, that lake next week and he says, I can redeem that lake. So the question is, will you let God use you? He is willing. He is able to use whatever you give him. So I'd ask you to give him everything. As we close now, I'd like you to be in a time of prayer of how God wants to use you today, this week, this month, this year, and into the future. Whatever you give him, he'll use. And the more you give him, the more he'll use. And the more good he can do with what you give him. And if you don't want to step into his will, he'll find some other way to accomplish it. But I feel like it'd be better if we were in his will and we were that part being used. We were his hands and feet. We are his heart and mind in our communities. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with all that we are and all that we have. And we ask that you redeem it piece by piece. Lord, this building, these people, the children, the teachers, our staff, these are all things that you can take and multiply the impact on. And so we pray that you would do that. And if we need you to break into our lives, Lord, please break into our lives. Remind us of what you can do because it pales in comparison to what we can do with our own power. As we leave here today, Lord, we pray that you would help us to stay grounded in your word. You would help us to be reading your words and be praying daily, talking with your people, thinking about you and seeing where you'd have us be of use. Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are, for what you have done to impact our lives already. But Lord, you're not done. There's more to do. There's more for us to be. 
and there's everything possible in you. We are so grateful, Lord. In your name we pray. If we can keep a spirit of prayer at this time, if you need to go, that's fine. If you want to pray with someone, well, we'll arrange that. But my question to you is, what does God want to do with you? In a preview of a little bit of next week, if you don't mind, in 2 Timothy, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of our Lord, nor of his prisoner, but share the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy, holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before time began. He's had a plan to use you if you'll surrender to him. Lord, bless us as we go. Thank you for your people and be with us. In the name we pray.